This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everybody. My name is Harry Helling. I'm the executive director of the Scripps Aquarium here at Birch. I'd like to welcome you all to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science Lecture Series. Uh, it is my great pleasure this evening to introduce our speaker, Dr. Mark Merrifield. He's the director of the Scripps' Scripps's new Center for Climate Change Impacts and Adaptations. Mark Merrifield is an internationally recognized researcher in the areas of sea level rise, climate variability, coastal oceanography, and nearshore processes. He received his PhD in oceanography right here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography in 1989. He was a postdoctoral researcher at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia from 1989 to 1991, followed by a return to Scripps as a project scientist and researcher. In 1994, he joined the faculty of the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Um, first in engineering and then oceanography, he then served as the director of the university's sea level center for 20 years, and we are fortunate to have him back here at Scripps. Uh, Mark has a longstanding interest in linking basic and applied research to practical solutions for the benefit of society. He's had experience working really with all sorts of different partners from academia, industry, government, non-government organizations, and is chair of the Global Sea Level Observing System, uh, the lead investigator of the waves and water level component of the Pacific Integrated Ocean Observing System, and is lead author of the Sea Level Change chapter of the fifth assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. As the director for the new Center for Climate Change Impacts and Adaptations, Mark is pursuing research that advances understanding of climate impacts and provides meaningful projections, as well as developing a focused curriculum that prepares the next generation of scientists, engineers, policymakers in risk assessment and adaptation strategies. So please help me welcome this evening Dr. Mark Merrifield for his talk about the new Center for Climate Change Impacts and Adaptations. Thank you. Uh, I just returned from a trip to Spain and uh, met with some of the best ocean engineers in the world at this facility in Spain. And they all talked about this legendary researcher at Scripps. I wasn't quite sure who they were talking about. It was Jeff Graham. And, uh, so I, and I hadn't realized that this was the Jeff Graham seminar series. And so that connection to Jeff, who I knew while I was here at Scripps and who was recognized as one of the real leaders in climate science at a very early stage. I'm really pleased to present at this, at this event. So um, this talk, as much as anything, has been, is meant just to organize myself a little bit. So I've been on the job since September, um, and we've, uh, it's been a whirlwind trying to get things uh, settled and kind of plant our flag in which direction we're going. And um, I've been really blessed to have a fantastic team who's helped along the way. So this really represents sort of our thinking on why this center is here. And time is sort of a kind of an underlying uh, theme to this talk. So what time is it? Why is this the right time? And what role do we play as a center? So thinking about 1957-58, uh, so 60 years ago, was the International Geophysical Year. And at that time, Roger Revelle was the director of Scripps, and he was preparing for that year, uh, planning, doing some strategic planning, which we're trying to do at Scripps right now. So it was the mother of all strategic plans when you see what he was able to accomplish. And so he put together a, he sort of specialized in atmospheric chemistry. It wasn't his specialty, but he realized that coming off the war and with some of the capabilities that were uh, available with radioactive dating and uh, that this was a new field. Um, he proceeded to lay down sort of three major, the major planks that really got us going in terms of our understanding of climate change. Uh, so it was well understood that there was a greenhouse effect. It goes back to Fourier, French physicist, and Arrhenius. Uh, but it was Roger Revelle who really brought it back into vogue because it, had, it was a sense that climate or carbon and 
emissions could accumulate in the atmosphere, but it was always thought that the oceans would ultimately be the reservoir that would take it all up. So they would be saturated and it wouldn't be a prob pose a problem for society. So it was Ravel and Seuss in 1957 who uh, published a famous paper that showed that the ocean can only uptake carbon dioxide so quickly. And in fact, it was much slower than had been predicted, which meant that there was potential for a lot more carbon dioxide to be uh, stored in the atmosphere. The timing for the ocean to take up carbon dioxide in any greenhouse gas emissions depends on the overturning circulation of the ocean, which is quite slow. So it's not an immediate sink. The other piece of work that he did with uh, Seuss, which became known as the Seuss effect, was to demonstrate that the carbon dioxide that was accumulating in the atmosphere could be clearly tagged to carbon emissions, to the burning of fossil fuels. So I don't understand this plot in detail. I just know that those two lines look alike. And one of them shows the increase in carbon dioxide. The other one shows what part of that is due to carbon that comes from plants or burning fossil fuel. And that is the reason for that buildup, is this uh, burning of fossil fuels that caused the buildup in the atmosphere. So two key, uh, crucial bits of information that had the whole world rethinking uh, what was happening with climate change. And then this was the kicker. It was the Keeling curve. Uh, so he was um, fundamental, or he was instrumental in bringing Charles Keeling to Scripps. And Charles Keeling uh, started in Mauna Loa and also in uh, uh, Antarctica and made the direct measurements of carbon that really are the, the most important time series in uh, geophysical science. So this was a kind of a perfect... Uh, merger. First of all, Ravel was able to generate the funding and sort of the um, motivation for this type of work. And Keeling was such a perfectionist that and set the standard for how you measure, make these measurements in these challenging locations, that he came together to form this iconic time series. That's his son, Ralph Keeling, in the, uh, holding the balloon there. And Ralph took over for Charles and is now maintaining the curve. And he said in 2015 that um, when this time series became part of the, uh, a national uh, landmark, the Mauna CO2 record changed how we view the world. It proved for the first time that humans were altering uh, the composition of air globally and thereby legitimized the concern over human-caused climate change. And it was Keeling, as Monk later uh, pointed out, it was, uh, sorry, it was Roger Revelle who insisted that this should be a continuous time series. This shouldn't be just spot measurements. And it was really the, the, that uh, foresight that really added to the power of this curve, because it's undeniable that this is going up. Those little wiggles uh, were also interesting at the time. This is the natural uptake of carbon seasonally. But those, the seasonal cycle is just uh, overwhelmed by the background trend. So it's interesting to go back and to think at the time what the information they had at their fingertips and sort of how remarkable it was they were able to reach the conclusions that they did. So this is uh, a time series, and this little red blip here is the beginning of the Keeling curve. So this would have been around 1960 or so, just after the geophysical year. And that blue line is uh, the current measurement or the current estimate of globally average temperature which we have satellites now that help us to do this. But at this time, this was done with just land stations and a few ocean stations to try and come up with a true global average. This was um, in Ravel and Seuss's paper. Thus, human beings are carrying out a large-scale geophysical experiment of a kind that could not have happened in the past uh, nor be reproduced in the future. Within a few centuries, we're returning to the atmosphere and oceans, the concentrated organic carbon stored in sedimentary rocks over hundreds of millions of years. And at that time, it was more of a geophysical curiosity. But as time went on, the, um, the signal started to change. This was what it would have looked like in 1981 when Roger wrote this in a Scientific American piece. We must conclude that until a warming trend that exceeds the noise level of natural climatic fluctuations becomes clearly evident, there will be a considerable uncertainty and a diversity of opinions about the amplitude of the climatic effects of increased atmospheric CO2. 
And he made this at a time when the carbon curve was clearly still going up, but the air temperature was still wandering around in a way that could have been and could likely be natural variability. Uh, this is what it looked like 10 years later, just after Roger passed away in the early 90s. This is the last statement in one of the last pieces he wrote. Research and observations over the next 10 to 20 years should give us a much better idea of the likely magnitude of atmospheric and oceanic warming during the 21st century. In the meantime, we should think of ways to mitigate, adapt to, and better understand future global change and its effects on our society and our environment. So here it was in 1990, and already we're starting to see the, see the signal obviously emerge from the natural variability. This is what it looks like today. Uh, and this was the summary to policymakers from the last IPCC report. Warming of the climate system is unequivocal. And since the 1950s, many of the observed changes are unprecedented over decades to millennia. It is extremely likely this is the first time that the IPCC made this strong of a statement, that human influence has been the dominant cause of the observed warming since the mid-20th century. So since that time, uh, we could go forward, we can also go back. And so some uh, phenomenal research that's been done in, in reconstructing CO2 uh, using ice cores. A lot of this work has been done at Scripps. And so what you can see are these ups and downs in CO2 concentration, which goes from about uh, just below maybe 180 up to maybe 280. And these fluctuations, of course, represent the uh, glacial, um, the ice ages, so the change from an ice age to an interglacial period. And so for that whole, for going back 800,000 years, CO2 ranged from about 180 to 280 parts per million. And then you can just make out over here this blip is the current CO2 concentration. So today's rate is both unprecedented in terms of its level, never before seen in the 800,000 years, and also the rate of change is much faster than uh, has ever been recorded. So even with all that, the CO2 curve to me still feels somewhat impersonal. So I was trying to think about how I might personalize it for myself, and I encourage you all to maybe think about this, but how would um, I think about CO2 in terms of my own family's generational story through, uh, through the time in the United States? So this first dot, these are the births of every Merrifield that has been born in the United States going back to the first one, which was Henry Merrifield in uh, the late, early 1600s. And um, so all these guys were on the East Coast. They lived, they were farmers. They lived fairly simple lives. Very rarely uh, left the villages that they, were, that they grew up in. Um, in this guy was my great-grandfather. And he was uh, Reuben Merrifield. He was an um, artist who painted banners for Ringing Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. So going from a pretty agricultural uh, trade-like background to sort of this first media star. So this was uh, <laughs> taking advantage. He painted for Ringling Brothers, also um, uh, Buffalo Bill's traveling show, some Wild West show. Uh, he was quite, quite famous, actually. His son, my grandfather, is this guy. And uh, he... I don't believe he graduated high school. He has a remarkable career, all self-made. He got into uh, building ships, uh, repairing radios. He became an electrical engineer, even though he had no business doing that. Worked at Northrop. Uh, and he drove big-ass cars. He drove a New Yorker <laughs> and a motorhome and an ultra van. And I'm certain that his CO2 is still up there somewhere. But he's... <laughs> He was a great guy. He was the guy who actually introduced me to Scripps way back when. My dad uh, was a bit of a playboy. So times had changed in such a way that you not only weren't tied to your area, but you could fly around the world. And so he was able to woo my mother in the island of Hawaii, um, flying back and forth from California, something that you would never think of in that earlier generation. 
And that's the next generation. Finally, uh, we can break away from the series of guys. Those are my daughters, um, who um, the, she's wearing a lay there. That's my youngest daughter, Anna. She just graduated, um, received her PhD last week in uh, climate science here at Scripps. So it's, uh, yeah, thank you. And not to be outdone, her older sister there is also a scientist at Scripps studying upper ocean physics. So that generational story to me has so many subtexts to it. First of all, just the CO2 story itself. I mean, so many generations going back to the very beginnings of the country only saw CO2 levels that kind of ranged just around 280, just around the, the global the maximum that you expect to be in when you're not in an ice age. So they, and that level was what was experienced going back thousands of years. So I don't know if you know the significance of around this time, 1781 or so. Does anybody have an idea of what, why 1781 stands out? Yeah. That's right. So that's, uh, that's the start of the steam engine. And, uh, and so you can already start to get a sense that that's already when the curve starts to change. And then just, uh, just the sense of how quickly it's changing. I mean, my father and grandfather were at levels that weren't that different to when I was born, but my daughters were in a completely different era. And their children, if that's going to happen, will be in a much different era. So it's, it's a story, I think, of just getting a sense of how CO2 has changed over just a few generations, how also how, uh, as a society, we've benefit, benefited so much from the burning of that CO2. The opportunities that were afforded to my family were certainly tied to all those opportunities that came from the burning of the fossil fuel. I mean, I don't think that my kids would have grown up in Hawaii. We would have no sense of where Hawaii was without uh, the, the, uh, my father and the way he traveled from place to place. So it's a... It's a um, curve that I think is also frightening because you start to think of where the next dots are going to be. So the IPCC report said the warming of the system is unequivocal. And I was at this IPCC AR5, and it really was that the level of certainty amongst the collective scientists was so great that they were making very, very strong statements uh, and a lot of that was because they felt that a strong statement needed to be made. But unequivocal is a big word if you're a scientist. And so how could, why are we so sure that the climate is changing and for the reasons that we've already talked about? And what really happened after Roger Revelle's last statement is a complete revolution in oceanography and earth science. And that's because we were no longer measuring the ocean from ships, but we're measuring it from space. And so these systems that you see here, a satellite altimeter, which can measure the height of the ocean to an accuracy of a couple of centimeters, thousands of kilometers up in space. This gravity mission, uh, which is able to, with two um, systems moving in tandem, can measure small changes in the pair and with it the gravity of the, of the Earth's surface. And this little thing here, this is not a satellite tool, but this is a uh, Argo float, a profiling float developed here at Scripps. And we'll see why that's been so important as well. But those three pieces, the altimeter, the gravity missions, and the Argo floats really are why this is unequivocal. Otherwise, you're dealing with things like tide gauges and point measurements on land. And what you really need to do is to come up with some sort of global estimate of what's happening. It's really impossible with just these point measurements. You need coverage from space. So here they are. This is the, the family of altimeters that started with Topex Poseidon to Jason 1 to Jason 2. This is uh, sequentially they were deployed. And they've been measuring the globally average sea level since the early 1990s. This is the curve that emerges. And uh, not only the global average, but what's happening in space, I mean, spatially around the oceans. So you can see that this is the trend over that time period, 1993 to 2017. 
The general orange is the global average of about three millimeters per year. Sea levels going up in that time. And then you see all these hot spots where ocean physics are causing convergences of the ocean surface. And those are uh, particular interest to oceanographers because there's usually a circulation pattern or a wind anomaly associated with that. Um, the altimeter is also measured sort of a decadal shift. So that general trend, if you look at the last 10 years, has flipped. So it's gone from something where it's high in the Western Pacific to something now high in the Eastern Pacific. The red is the high, the blue is the low. So this, this signal has a um, means that what we'll be seeing in San Diego, for instance, will be higher than the global average for some time to come as this plays out. Uh, the other piece is the gravity, which seems, even now, just seems phenomenal that you can measure the gravity field of the entire ocean, which means that you can measure the mass of the ocean. So you know how much mass of water is in the ocean, how much is also on land. They're obviously coupled to each other. One is, balances the other. And we know from that gravity mission where that mass of the ocean is coming from. Uh, that yellow line there is increasing uh, over time. The gravity mission started in the late 1990s. So where is that, that increase means that it has to come from, well, you would think that it comes from ice on land. As that ice melts, should, you should see a mass loss over the ice fields and the balancing the ocean uh, increase. And so where that's happening is in two main places. Well, first of all, most of the high glaciers are, are melting at a rapid rate. But the two big contributions to sea level are West Antarctica, shown here. This green line is the time series of the mass change in West Antarctica, and most of it coming in this, this section here. You may have heard uh, in a uh, House panel where they questioned whether um, the mass was actually accumulating in Antarctica, and it is. This blue area here is where snow is actually accumulating and the mass is actually building up. But if you integrate over the whole continent, uh, the mass is certainly going down. The other hot spot, which is even greater, is Greenland. And there the signal is really unequivocal. So the whole, the whole ice uh, sheet uh, on Greenland is melting at an unprecedented rate. So those two pieces are a big part of why sea level is rising. They're the biggest cause right now of sea level is the freshwater input from land. The other big piece, which is also the signature of global warming, because if we're heating the, if we're heating the Earth, where that heat goes is into the ocean. And so there is a system now with these profiling floats developed by Dean Remick and Russ Davis here at Scripps to sample the entire ocean. So this is zero down to 2,000 meters over a mile deep. Uh, continuously bobbing up and down. These floats are measuring temperature and salinity, reporting back where they were. And if you average all of that, you get this signal, which is the axis here is time going from 2006 to present. This is zero over a mile deep in depth. These greens are cool. The orange is warm. So you can see that the whole ocean is warming. The average temperature of the ocean is increasing. And not just at the surface, as we thought from the beginning, but is really penetrating down and affecting depths uh, at much greater depths. So this is part of that overturning circulation of the ocean. The heat at the surface is being entombed into the ocean. As it does, that ocean expands, and that's causing sea level to rise. So three completely different systems, two satellites and these floats bobbing around in the ocean. Uh, Here's the bit that is sort of mind-blowing. This red curve is the ocean heat rise, uh, the sea level rise due to ocean heating, measured by Argo. The blue is the change in the mass, so just how much water has been added to the ocean. This is from GRACE, the jet gravity missions. And then this is the sea level curve. If you add the red and the blue, you get the purple line, which is an independent uh, validation that what's measured with the satellites for sea level change it's confirmed that that change is happening due to the heating and change in mass of the ocean. Pretty, pretty much a closed story there. It's un, it's, we can, for the first time, which is, is really the challenge, it's really how do you do a global average? How do you integrate this effect over the whole globe? With satellites and Argos, you can. And when you do that, you close the sea level budget. You know why it's rising. You also know that there's 
with satellites, we can measure how much heat is incident from the sun, how much heat is radiating from the Earth. There's a mis imbalance that's measured by satellites. That imbalance is consistent with the heat that's being absorbed by the ocean. So everything is sort of balancing. Uh, there's really no place else you need to look for mass or changes in sea level. You don't need to invoke uh, the Dover Cliffs of England or whatever that was. There's plenty of evidence here to suggest what's going on. And again, we can go back in time. So with paleo records, we can not only confirm that um, this is what sea level was doing decade by decade going back to the first century. And those are the rate, uh, how much sea level changed. You can see the sort of natural variability that goes on. And then you can see the outlier, which is the 20th century. This is what the sea level rise looks like. The red line is the global curve. The black line is what's been measured in San Diego Harbor since 1905. And you can see it's been tracking global sea level. So sea level's gone up by about a foot in San Diego. That's pretty much what's happened around the world. You can see these highs and lows, which have uh, to do with really interesting physics like El Nino. But for the most part, sea level's rising, and we know why. So that's where we are. The yellow line is where we are, uh, and then where we're going. So the models that are used to uh, explain the sea level budget right now um, are also used to do projections. So these models are do well at capturing what we've just seen in terms of mass and heat change. And if you run them into the future with projected changes in greenhouse gas emissions, you get some scary projections of where sea level's headed. This blue line is sort of the best case scenario if we really got serious about limiting our emissions, which is already um, obsolete or it's already moot because we've already passed the point where we should have started on this. The red line is kind of business as usual. Uh, assuming that nothing is really unusual is going to happen to the, those ice sheets that we, that we showed. And the red line is, or the purple line here is a uh, recent estimate of what might happen if these ice sheets really start to become unstable. So what we're talking about then is a foot of change over the 20th century, somewhere between two and three feet of change, if we believe the, the kind of IPCC-style climate models, anywhere up to eight feet uh, if we start to worry about how the ice sheets might be behaving in a way that we haven't seen yet. And they're already starting to show signs of that. So this is the um, Helheim Glacier in Greenland. And from 2002 to 2005, uh, the speed of this glacier has doubled, and it's thinned over 200 meters at its margin and retreated about four miles back into the, into the crevasse there. So this glacier is rapidly retreating, and as it does so, it starts to... Um, the integrity of the, um, the ice that's holding up the ice behind it starts to break down, and you start to worry about a domino effect. Why this is happening is um, I'm going to be showing you a few pictures here of people at Scripps who are leading the charge on climate research. Here's one of them, Fiamo Stranio. Fiamo's team has gone out and actually made measurements right up to the, uh, to the exit point there. And she's shown that it's the warming of the ocean that's the problem here. That it's not just the air temperature, but it's the ocean temperature that starts to become an issue at these exit glaciers. And that becomes uh, even more of a challenge for these climate models, because you have to not only get the air temperature right, but you have to understand what the ocean's doing. And no model at this stage can do that well going into the future uh, decades in advance. So why, um, I guess I'm just maybe just showing off. This is why I'm so proud that the center is at Scripps, is that we have at our disposal and also collaborating with us really some of the best climate scientists in the world. Uh, one of them is Ralph Keeling, um, the, the son of Charles Keeling. And Ralph has shown, and his team has shown, it's not just the ocean, it's the terrestrial ecosystem that's taking up carbon dioxide. So when you start to think about what the sink of a carbon is, you can't ignore uh, the land. Uh, Ralph was the one who first understood that the ocean is losing oxygen, and that what you might expect is the ocean starts to warm, it holds less oxygen. And Lisa Levin shown below, has been working on 
where these hypoxic areas or dead zones are starting to occur. So these blue areas are places where you're starting to see these hypoxic effects. The red areas are places where the coastal, air, the coastal zones are showing rapid depletion. So you can see that this is a fundamental, well, first of all, it's a global problem. Um, it's affecting many of the world's fisheries, uh, and it is um, something that we're just starting to get an understanding of. Sarah Perkey just joined Scripps, and she did a study with Greg Johnson that changed the way we thought about how the ocean heat is being um, transported through the ocean. So we already saw with Argo that it can go down to 2,000 meters, but Sarah showed it goes right down to the bottom of the ocean. So these red areas here are places where the ocean is warmed, causing sea level to rise, um, and you can see that it's affecting primarily the southern oceans where a lot of water is, deep water for, is formed. Lynn Talley is, um, has tirelessly sampled the ocean to understand how the properties of the ocean are changing and how, how you link that to the circulation. And I'll just read here, she was the uh, winner of the 2017 Stommel Award for exceptional contributions to understanding the genesis, distribution, and fate of mode in intermediate waters and the importance in global heat and freshwater transport. She is the world expert. Uh, Shang Ping She uh, was a colleague of mine in Hawaii who is now here at Scripps. He was the 2017 Globe Gold Medal winner. These are big awards that these people have won. Um, and he won the award for fundamental contributions to understanding the coupled ocean atmosphere feedback processes involved in climate variability and climate change. And notably, he was the one that kind of debunked this uh, climate hi hiatus that was hit the popular press a few years ago. He showed that, that there's a difference between what the temperature of the air is and what the, the heat of the ocean is, which is the real, the real issue. And of course, Ram Ramanathan, who's made fundamental and important contributions to our understanding of atmospheric processes involved in climate change, and is also um, now the leader uh, for the UC system and for uh, really the world in trying to um, find ways to mitigate against uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So the story of where we're headed is kind of summarized here. It's a little complicated, but I'll try to walk through it. This is um, the cumulative total anthropogenic CO2 emissions from 1870. So it builds up. Keep track of it. This is how it's increasing over time. And with that, you can see on the y-axis the temperature anomaly that goes with that buildup of atmospheric carbon. Uh, it's not just carbon, it's other gases, it's particularly methane, but this is just to, to illustrate the effect. And so basically it's all about how much you put into the atmosphere, that's what the temperature is going to be. If you want to put it in fast, then it's going to get warmer faster. If you're going to put it in slow, it's going to go slower. And so you, if you want to avoid going above some threshold, and two degrees increase has been uh, recognized as an important threshold above which the Earth system starts to become unstable and potentially behave in ways that we don't understand, uh, you have to figure out a way to keep the greenhouse gas emissions down. And so the, the black line here is kind of where we are. This bl dark blue line is if we really got busy and tried to reduce emissions. The blue line is a, the light blue line is a more optimistic but not entirely um, it, we're still not on that track and the red red line is closer to where we are right now in terms of our current rates of emissions so if this is true then by 2100 we can expect a 4.5 degrees C increase in global average temperature the other I think important point that came out of the last IPCC report is that this system is has a lot of inertia with it and no matter what we do um, although we certainly need to do something, but we're going to end up with warmer temperatures. So the mitigation is, is the key thing we need to do, but the other point is that we need to adapt because there are things coming at us that are unavoidable, and um, we have some time to sort that out. And I think time, going back to this, is it unequivocal or not? What the system did, what those satellites, what the Argo floats did, is they gave us time. Without those systems, we'd still be messing around with point measurements around the Earth trying to figure out what a global average is. But with those systems, we now know 
what that the time is now. Uh, Roger Revelle's challenge that we have a certain amount of time to figure this out. Those systems figured it out for us. And so now is the time to act. So what's coming in terms of what do we have to adapt against? And that is a whole array of horrors here. Uh, loss of biodiversity, wildflowers, floods, acidification, sea level rise, spread of disease, water, um, droughts, extreme events. Just everything that we are affected by now, it seems like you get the sense that it's getting worse and worse. Part of that is because they are getting worse and worse. Some of it is these aren't really getting worse and worse, but there are more people that are putting themselves in harm's way by building in places where um, hurricanes happen or drought happens. And so that's uh, part of the problem. So what's going to happen? What are we facing in terms of San Diego? So we're not a regional center per se, but the center is definitely going to focus on regional issues because that's adaptation tends to be a local pursuit. And then we are... We want to team with the local communities and to, to address these issues. We're certainly going to get hotter. We're in a desert. It's going to get hotter. It's going to get hotter here. There's no surprise here. The question is how hot. And we have a whole team of researchers uh, on the left here who have spent a time thinking about this. And they've come up with models showing where we might be in the mid-century coming up compared to where we are now. And you just see everything getting a lot redder. So this means a lot more heat waves, a lot hotter summers, um, spring coming earlier, um, more wildfires, uh, all sorts of ramifications coming with heat, um, in including a toll on human health. That heat is going to be melting a lot of snow. So the Sierra uh, snowpack is predicted to, is already showing signs that it's diminishing, and by the end of the century, it will have diminished quite a bit, 48% of what it is now. So this means that um, the runoff will be earlier. There will be more floods associated with those kind of runoff events. And there will be, most importantly of all, the less stored water. So for communities that are dependent on these um, snowpack and glaciers and other areas for their water, um, the melting is going to pose a profound cha challenge for um, water resources. This one is a little bit up and down, but you might expect that precipitation might change. There's still an evolving science on this, but this last study, um, which showed up in the IPCC report 4, shows that we can expect in the um, Southlands, Southwest US, a, the orange is a decrease, a 20% decrease in precipitation uh, going into the uh, the last decade of the century. Sea level rise. So we are already seeing sea level rise going up with the global curve. The global curve is bound to go up by, uh, as proposed to go up by another few feet or more by the end of the century. And it was uh, Walter Monk, when he was honored by having the boardwalk in front of uh, the beach here in La Jolla named the Walter Monk Way uh, at the commemoration ceremony said, uh, now my birthday, as you know, is 100 years tomorrow, and I have a worry that I would like to share with you that the CO2 going into the atmosphere is now producing a rate of sea level rise so that the Walter Monk Way is not going to enjoy a 100-year birthday. And the models uh, support Walter. This is um, called the Cosmos model, and it's showing what might happen at the end of the century with three feet of sea level rise and just your typical annual swell event in, the, in this winter, and what might flood as a consequence. And so not only is Walter Monk way flooded, but much of uh, La Jolla Shores is going to be uh, in trouble. So that brings us to the Center for Climate Change Impacts and Adaptation. So we have this phenomenal group of scientists, the best in the world, really. We have a heritage. This is the center of understanding climate change, starting with Roger Revell 60 years ago. And that, um, that has been passed on generation to generation to some of the finest scientists in the world. Uh, we still needed a spark to get this thing going, and that spark is in the front row here. Uh, Dick and Carol Dean Hertzberg were the ones that, first of all, because of their association with the director's council, they understood what Scripps was about. They understood 
the firepower that Scripps could bring to this problem, and really it was a shame that it wasn't being brought to the problem. And so they, they uh, lured me out here, and <laughs> the, we've had many discussions on how this is going to go, and I think we share a common vision that we want to see a center that is about problem solving. So it is not about just amplifying the science or to do more science of the kind. How do we translate that science into actions that actually benefit people on the planet? And we know that this is now beyond just a scientific problem, that many of these changes now require interdisciplinary teams. Uh, they require social scientists, economists, engineers coming together uh, to bring their talents to a common goal. We also have not been the most um, outgoing group of scientists in the world, where I think most of us tend to be uh, quite happy here on the campus. Um, it's a wonderful place to work, not a lot of motivation to, to venture out. But we more and more need to engage with the community to understand what the challenges are and to really work together to come up with these solutions. So community-based partnerships are a big part of where we're going. And as a university, um, we believe that we are the um, hub for um, educating students and the community about climate science, about climate impacts, and to it's a natural place to bring these uh, various talents together for these interdisciplinary teams. We're going to start with, um, my, my interest is sea level rise, so we're certainly going to look at sea level rise as an issue. Sea level rise is an issue more for the la later part of the century, mid to later part of the century for San Diego. Um, probably more pressing, droughts and extreme weather events, heat waves and fires, and ocean acidification and how that's affecting marine ecosystems along the coast here. And as kind of a guiding principle, uh, the adaptation strategies were sort of focused on resilience to extremes because we're already experiencing these. Building resilience to extremes already has a um, broad and immediate uh, benefits to uh, society and uh, in different sectors of society. So the team we brought together, you um, introduced my team here later, but the team that we have at our disposal is over 80 affiliated researchers across UCSD, and this number is growing as fast as the global temperature curve. I mean, we, um, we ex this is just the group of people, really, at Scripps who are interested, who want to take part, who want to be part of these teams. Um, you can see uh, it's an illustrious group. Um, Margaret Linen's in the middle there as a researcher. Former director Charles Kennel is part of this group. Uh, Richard Somerville, uh, and it's growing, and it's growing because we're now starting to uh, incorporate the talents of Upper Campus, and so we um, have at our disposal, we believe, the full um, energy and resources of UCSD. Come check out our website, and I've learned a lot just kind of being dragged along and developing this website, and I never knew what it really what a blog was. I really appreciate them now. They're pretty cool. So these blogs, and a blog is hard to convey in the screen here, but um, they are come to the site because it tells you what research is going on and what's, what's happening around campus. So whether it's uh, what's happening with um, sand replenishment projects or how researchers are looking at bioluminescence, what's being done on North County when it comes to sea level rise, uh, new... Um, new um, symposia that are coming up to look at, uh, to bring people together to think about solutions. It really is a, a, a meeting place, um, and it's, it's how we tie together these 80 affiliated researchers. It's also how we hope to interface with you all. So let's get to this notion of problem solving. Um, so we've heard that Del Mar is concerned, rightfully so, about things like planned retreat which is being posed from the state level. But the question is, how are we going to, or how is Del Mar going to protect these uh, very expensive, these very beautiful homes that are right on the beach, 
um, and are more and more exposed to sea level rise. Well, Scripps has been thinking about beaches for quite a while and has already a natural built team. Adam Young, Bonnie Luca, Bob Guza, Timu Galleon, and many more are bringing to bear uh, modern technologies to think about how our beaches are changing. This is all done from aerial LIDAR flights. Uh, Adam Young has put this together for us showing what the height of the land is as you fly over um, San Diego region. And if you fly over it more than once, you can start to look at differences from flight to flight. And in particular, you can look at differences associated with the El Nino event. So these orange areas are places where the beach along Torrey Pines going to between Del Mar and Scripps eroded considerably by a meter or more uh, associated with that El Nino winter. Here's what that El Nino winter looked like. Uh, so it took us right down to the cobbles. And um, so you get a sense of how the beach has changed. These two events here are the last El Nino and the 2009-2010 El Nino. Uh, we've been monitoring, or Scripps has been monitoring that beach since 2009. And you can see the seasonal change and then how big of a change these El Ninos have. So really, for California beaches, uh, one of the big issues is how frequently What's going to happen to El Niños in the future? What's the, are they becoming more frequent, more st stronger? And the research is, is continuing on that topic. Uh, besides, I th when I was studying beaches with that same group, we spent a lot of time avoiding anything that was not natural. So we wanted to understand natural variability. We didn't want to be near a seawall or near a revetment. Or, but that's all changing now. Now we have to understand what those structures are doing. We have to understand when you introduce sand to a system, how is it going to move? So it's a completely different kind of mindset. Here's a big uh, nourishment project that happened in Imperial Beach and some interesting um, uh, studies about where that sand actually went. Was, it wasn't all good. Some of it went to blocking the estuary. Some of it created a little moat that kind of trapped water for these homeowners. So there's a lot to learn about how best to protect our beaches. Pollution contaminating uh, the South Beach, South Bay beaches. So the Tijuana River, when it rains hard, that river um, is a, a source of effluent that goes out and spreads along the coast. Um, and we have teams that are coming together to try to understand how often that's going to occur in the changing climate, how likely that is to occur, bring uh, polluted water our way, uh, what's going, how often are we going to get heavy rain events that spur these things. This was a study done by this team, Falk Federson and Sarah Giddings, uh, introducing this pink dye and watching it, uh, treating it like a, a pollution source, and watching it move up and down the coast and seeing how the waves and currents uh, push this, this stuff around. Um, so in terms of building these interdisciplinary teams, we're trying to uh, develop this res resilient future initiative focused on this particular problem. And with it, we're bringing together um, the physical oceanographers with Kate Rickey, who is an economist who sits at Scripps and UCSD, and Sasha Gershinoff, who's a climatologist. So bringing together all these talents to understand what the economic impacts of bad water, more bad water events, and a changing climate, what economic impacts that have might for the future. Wildfires are becoming more prevalent. Um, and we have a, a group, a proposal out to look at fire weather in a changing climate and how that is going to affect human health. Um, again, interdisciplinary team, a climatologist, a meteorologist, uh, epidemiologist, all coming together to understand this problem of when you get Santa Ana winds, um, how do you model that? How do you model that and um, think about that in terms of climate change? So that is another example. This notion that we need to be um, better communicators of what's happening with climate change is borne out by some recent polls and with just, your, with just the popular press, which uh, still a lot of people do not believe that global warming is happening. Actually, 70% is an encouraging number, I, I would say. Global is warming caused by human activities, about 50-50. Uh, most scientists think global warming is happening. Most do. I would say over 95% do but the public believes that only half do. Um, and the, the mistrust in scientists and global warming um, research is, is alarming. 
what is more, perhaps more encouraging is there's an appetite for embracing change, for finding solutions. 71% support uh, increased funding for renewable energy sources. Uh, a majority would like to regulate CO2 as a pollutant, set stricter CO2 limits, require utilities to use more renewable energy sources, and to teach climate change and global warming in public schools. So there is a, uh, an unusual mismatch here. The messaging about the science seems to be lagging behind the perception that we need to do something about it. So at the center, we are um, committed to training these next leaders who are going to help get this message across. Uh, we have a Master's of Advanced Studies program in Climate Science and Policy. They're shown here mixed in with PhD students who uh, worked with them to share um, the latest in climate science from their point of view. So they got a teaching opportunity. And they were able to link up with these master's students who brought the policy uh, component to the problem. We are also about to launch this summer the Julia K. Brown Fellowship for Climate Change Adaptation Research. It's a wonderful program that's going to fund these students to embark and to take on these adaptation projects. Julia Brown sitting in the front row here is a friend of the center. Uh, we are excited by um, a program that we've inherited with a, sort of a um, the Climate Science Alliance, which Amber Paris has brought to the, to the center and to Scripps. And with that comes the Climate Kids Program, which is trying to bring um, a better understanding of climate science to uh, K through 12. Uh, you can see some of the numbers here that she's been able to achieve. 16,000 plus uh, students um, were exposed to the program, 50 community events reaching over 100,000 people. The Climate Kids, her Climate Kids program has expanded from San Diego to the tribes to the east, to Mexico, and to other places around the country. And this is a program that we hope to embed, uh, we hope to work with uh, Birch Aquarium in uh, centering at Scripps. So with that, I'd just like to end um, by um, saying that we have a lot to do. <laughs> We, have our, we are looking to partner with as many inst uh, groups and institutions and um, community sectors as we can. Uh, one of them is, is Birch. And uh, we believe that this combination of putting you in touch with the natural world, letting you know what's at stake, and then understanding the science that helps you take action is a powerful tool, a powerful combination. Um, and with that, I'd like to... Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.